This is Into the Mix, a Ben and Jerry's podcast about joy and justice, produced with Vox Creative. I'm Ashley C. Ford. Grassy Narrows. When you look it up on a map of Canada, tucked into the western reaches of Ontario, it's easy to mistake for an island. You zoom out and out and out, watching green disintegrate into blue. Just as much water as land, where a hundred-year-old spruce and balsam fir roll along shorelines. Endless trees made double in the placid reflection of all that water. That's what you find as you pull off the Trans-Canada Highway, a few hours east of the longitudinal center of the country. Chrissy Isaacs was born here, in the 1,500-square-mile territory of Grassy Narrows, also known as... A subpiece Kusiwagun, and it actually just means Grassy Narrows. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, the long grass. Because our people traveled by the river all the time. So when you're coming into the community, like to the main community, you have to go through um, these grassy narrows. So you know where we are right now? This used to be an old logging camp. So like, it's just like we reclaimed it as like, no, this is where it ends. In a wooded clearing not far from the community's entrance, on one of Grassy's many shorelines, Chrissy is practically vibrating as she introduces my producers to her home. Dotting the clearing, a small log cabin, an outhouse, a screened-in kitchen, a fire pit, and a high-tech bear-repelling device. A rusty paint can, full of rocks. (laughs) (laughs) On a cold night in 2002, Chrissy and her sister were driving around grassy, and their hearts sank as they watched yet another logging truck loaded with old-growth trees hurtle past them on Highway 671, the only road into the reserve, built by and for the logging industry. And I was just like, man, that's so sickening, you know, like seeing those logging trucks, you know, and just knowing, you know, that every day a part of a part of who we are is disappearing every day. And, you know, who's going to teach our kids, you know, to hunt and fish and what's going to be here for them. And um, I just said, we should just stop them. They picked up a friend and his chainsaw and drove down 671 into the forest. We went out always up the road there and we put tobacco at a tree and talked to the tree, you know, and said, we're going to use you, you know, to stop the logging. And we dropped that tree on the road and then we started making our way this way, you know, dropping logs. That was the first night of what is now a 21-year blockade. It felt really um, awesome. (laughs) It was great because, you know, finally, you know, 
that something was being done. But I bet you little did all of any of us realize like how big and how important that what we did, you know, like how important it was and how it like was changing the lives of our whole community, you know, and like even though, you know, we still fight today, there's still, there's a lot of goodness that came out of that. The physical act of dropping those trees in the road sent a message to the clear cutters operating in Grassy's traditional territory. We do not accept this harm. The blockade wasn't just where the logging stopped. It's where a new chapter for Grassy began. The logging blockade in Grassy Narrows, the movement to protect water from pipeline expansion in Standing Rock, the call to return Mount Rushmore to the Lakota who call the land sacred, all these actions are part of the land back movement. For centuries across North America, colonizers have seized ancestral lands, attempting to extinguish entire cultures in pursuit of profit and devastating generations of indigenous communities in the process. But the land back movement isn't about money. It's about protection for the land, for future generations, for all of us. Let's get into it. The story of Grassy Narrows, where it's been and where it's going, has everything to do with that relationship to the land and what happens when it's destroyed. There is so much hope and heart and warmth and joy in this story. I want you to know that first. I also want you to know that Chrissy's story and the story of Grassy Narrows include extraordinary challenges, including self-harm and suicide. It's important to her that you know that, but please do take care. During the first week of the Grassy Narrows logging blockade 21 years ago, the entire community mobilized. The school was moved out to blockade headquarters, taking over the freshly vacated logging structures. I remember they just like had makeshift shelters and stuff where they were doing their classes. And it wasn't just like math and all that anymore. It started to be like where they were learning, you know, to fillet fish. They were learning to trap. I just remember thinking, wow, this is like awesome. You know, this is the kind of school our people need, you know. The blockade united Grassy Narrows during a difficult time. It felt like it brought our whole community together. And we're like families that were against families, you know, we're sitting at the same fire and talking and laughing together. And our community has just changed so much from that time. It's like there's more love and compassion. And just like everything that, that has changed, you know, from when I was a kid. I don't know, there's so many things like that I never would have imagined, you know, that that would happen just from, you know, doing something so simple. <laughs> and we all come from a, from the same place and that's, you know, a place of love. That's that's what we all have in common, you know, that we love 
We love the land, we love the water, we love our people. And most of all, we, we all do it for our children. This fight for land back is really wrapped up in this love, this love for our communities, this love and reverence for the lands and territories where we come from. Meet Ariel. So my name is Ariel Tsaekwi, which is a Dene Sotlane name, and it means Thunder Woman. Um, and I am a member of the Durange family. Our original name was Deskelne, and in Dene, Deskelne means river keeper. But the French Jesuit missionaries uh, gave us a new name, which was Durange, which means to disturb. So my name, Ariel Tsaekwi Durange, means means Thunder Woman to Disturb, uh, which is quite hilarious to me. Ariel is a member of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation in the central southern province of Saskatchewan. And I'm the executive director and founder of Indigenous Climate Action, which is a Indigenous social movement vehicle um, located in so-called Canada. This language is important to Ariel. I'll let her explain. We do not call this place Canada. We are not citizens of Canada. We are citizens to our nations. I currently live in the territory of Treaty 6 or the territories of the Enoch Cree Nation. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge not only the history, but the fact that this country is founded on treaty agreements that are supposed to acknowledge these peoples from time immemorial until the grass grows and the sun shines. I live in Indiana, presumably meaning land of the Indians, on land seized from indigenous peoples. This history is present in so much of our culture on both sides of the U.S.-Canada border. As the United States expanded steadily westward throughout the first half of the 19th century, snapping up land stewarded by indigenous communities since time immemorial, Canadian politicians were nervous about being outconquered. They set their sights on an enormous swath of land in the middle of the continent that would protect Canadian interests from American encroachment. Known to the colonizers as Rupert's Land, the British Crown purchased it from a private company, granting the then new Canadian government power over lands loved, protected, and revered by Indigenous communities for centuries. It now accounts for more than a third of modern Canada. To exert control over the land it now dubiously owned, between 1871 and 1921, the Canadian government signed 11 treaties with Indigenous communities stretching between the Yukon and Ontario, securing land and industrial interests for the Crown. In exchange, the First Nations signatories were promised all kinds of things, money, of course, also supplies, tools, and special rights to the land. But these agreements were enforced in ways their indigenous signatories never could have predicted. The people of Grassy Narrows signed Treaty 3, and at their very core, the numbered treaties were designed to assimilate indigenous people into white colonial society, 
They paved the way for residential schools, which many thousands of indigenous children were subjected to, Chrissy among them. And as land was stripped from these First Nations, provisions were passed to outlaw indigenous cultural practices and ceremonies. Land Back is about correcting the long, long history of colonizers on this land claiming indigenous territories as their own for economic benefit. Land as resource, a commodity, extracted, traded, owned, and controlled. But for millions of indigenous people around the world, it's about a lot more than ownership. It is about restoring those relationships that have been severed by colonization. For me, as a Dene person, Dene or Dene Sotlene means people of the land. When you break down the word Dene, it actually means to flow from the land. And we as Indigenous peoples come from these different territories that have been a part of our identity. They are like kin to us. It is family to us because we have flowed from these river systems, these ecosystems, these mountain ranges, all of these places. And almost every language, Indigenous language, when you look at the, how they refer to themselves, the, their um, their sort of namesakes or the, the tribes where they come from always have a reference to the ecosystems and where they come from. My people are originally Kaitale Dene Sotlene, which means people of the willow. And it's a reference to the peace Athabasca Delta and the willows that grow along the waterways. And my chief once said, if they completely destroy the Athabasca Delta, the Kaitale, who are we? Who are we when they destroy this? And when we talk about land back, it is about maintaining that relationship and those identities. For us, it is about restoring relationships. Chrissy describes Grassy as a really hard place to grow up, a place with few surviving elders, and those who did live past 50 were sick. Because logging wasn't the only thing destroying her home and her culture. Until 1998, most of Grassy's children were sent to residential schools, infamous institutions of assimilation, meant to wipe the indigeneity out of kids like Chrissy. And then there was the mercury. In the 60s, a paper mill operating in Grassy's traditional territory dumped mercury waste into the lakes and buried it underground, poisoning the beating heart of Grassy, its groundwater, and its people. When mercury was inevitably detected in the fish, Grassy's main source of both food and income, the government shut down the local fishing industry. Unemployment in Grassy shot to 95%. Meanwhile, mercury began to build up in bloodstreams and lingered. Once mercury is in the body, it bioaccumulates, building each time you're exposed. Mothers also pass it on to their children in utero. It's an intergenerational poison. A 2022 report found that 90% of Grassy's community members are affected by mercury poisoning. Chrissy is one of them. Muscular degeneration, the shakes, 
loss of balance. Mercury poisoning attacks the body viciously, but it also attacks the brain and the spirit. A study released this year found that the young people in Grassy are more than three times more likely to attempt suicide than the youth in any other indigenous community in Canada. Prior to 1970, when the paper mill was shut down, no suicide had ever been recorded in Grassy Narrows. Now, over 40% of Grassy's teenage girls make attempts to end their lives. This landmark study emphatically underlines what Indigenous people across the world know to be true, that Indigenous identity is inseparable from the lands and waters, and that when the land is poisoned, so are we. On the night that Chrissy and her sister hopped in the car with a chainsaw, she said a prayer for the first tree and cut it down for her eldest daughter. So she like basically grew up here, you know, and so did my other daughter. This is like a part of their their home, you know, like even when they're having a hard time in life, this is where they want to come. They say, let's go to the blockade. Why do you think that is? I think it's because maybe this is like literally where good things started to happen like for everybody in our community yeah and now this is like a place of healing this is you know a place of ceremony a place of like to gather and yeah so it just became like uh like our place i guess This is the power of Land Back. Land Back as a movement got its name in 2018. Land Back isn't new. It's just that we we talk about it now in this like more sort of common language, Land Back. And Land Back isn't just about giving, like selling the land back to Indigenous people. So we've seen Land Back sort of come in these waves of like, you know, big funders give money to an Indigenous tribe or community and then they buy it back from some white colonial settler. And that is definitely sort of a form towards land back, but land back actually requires settlers to release their power and control over their lands and territories and put it back into the hands of Indigenous communities. Ariel started Indigenous Climate Action after a trip home to Treaty 4 territory for the first time in a decade. I am 44 years old, and I've seen how much climate change and industrialization has completely altered those spaces. Entire river systems that just don't exist anymore. To massive forests that I once knew as a child completely cut down for industrial development and tar sands extraction. And I knew that the tar sands had grown extensively during that time period. I had heard about it and like this was when my cousin called me and said, "You, we need your help. You got to come. And I just remember being like, I wonder how bad it is because I remember seeing those big like refineries when I was younger, but there were only two of them. She was not prepared for what she saw. 
And I remember coming over this ridge and you come in and all you see is expansive extraction, massive tailings, ponds, sand dunes, and cannons going off to stop the birds from landing. And I remember that coming over that ridge for the first time after not being there for 10 years. And I had this moment of this memory of driving that same road as a child with my dad and he pulled over and we were in the ditch and there was like a little rainbow of oil in the water in the ditch. And my dad said, this is oil and this oil poisons the land. And this is what the white man does when he doesn't understand the relationship of this land. They poison it and they destroy it. And he's like, and we've been trying to stop these guys for years. And when you get older, it will be your responsibility to stop them when you're older. And in that moment, literally fast forward 11 years later, as I'm coming over that ridge and the expansiveness of remembering just a streak in a puddle to what I saw, my breath literally was taken away. My breath was taken away. I could not breathe. I My ears began to ring and they began to get like cloudy as my auntie was just telling me about the expansion that had happened over the last 11 years. And I just started sobbing. And every time I tell that story, it's like I'm pulled back into that moment because it was like seeing a family member just dead on the side of the road, just with no care, as if it didn't matter that this mutilation was there. These places that were sacred to me and my people just gone. And I knew, I knew in that moment that this could not be the reality that we live in. This could not be the reality that we are accepting, not only for my people, but for the planet. How had we become so disconnected from the fact that we are Dene? We flow from the earth, every single last one of us. And we have lost that relationship. We have lost that ability to understand what it means. When we come back, climate, culture, and the future that Land Back promises. In April of 2023, the government in Ontario announced a 10-year logging ban in Grassy Narrows, enshrining into law a de facto moratorium that logging companies had observed since 2008, a direct result of the community's stand against clear-cutting. For the next decade, Grassy has assurance that no logging will happen in their 10,000-acre territory. The province has also pledged $85 million towards cleaning up the river, and a mercury clinic is in the works for residents affected by poisoning. While Chrissy's community waits for those promises to come true, they're also wary. What happens when that 10-year logging ban expires? This lingering question is exactly why Ariel and Chrissy are hesitant to call the ban a flat-out land-back victory. Since colonization, since the signing of treaty, colonial settlers have been setting the terms for how we operate within their structures. 
Even the treaties and the way that we utilize and uphold treaties is purely through the interpretive lens of colonial settler Canada. They have no desire to uphold tenets of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which states that we have the right to our own governance and legal structures and systems, which would require them to acknowledge legal pluralism. Legal pluralism describes systems where more than one government exists in the same geographical area. Basically, the coexistence of different governments in one place. It's not impossible. We have treaty agreements and we have traditional and hereditary governance systems that our communities have used for millennia that the governments say they respect unless it impedes in their jurisdiction of colonial laws. That is not actually respecting. That is paying lip service to the fact that they say that they acknowledge that we live here and that's simply it. Canada only upholds the respect for our sovereignty and self-determination when it serves their agenda. And we do not have any form of legal pluralism in this country, but that is what is necessary for our communities to truly assert our sovereignty and self-determination. Real land back, I'm talking about no term limits, no exceptions, is powerful for generations to come. When we give the lands and territories back to Indigenous communities where they get to govern by their own set of standards and rules and, um, you know, governance and laws and structures around sustainability and practices and relationships, there's a really interesting thing that starts to happen. When Indigenous culture, language, and value systems begin to thrive and come back into homeostasis with those ecosystems, those ecosystems begin to increase their biodiversity. And when they increase their biodiversity, they increase their abilities to sequester carbon from the atmosphere and lead us towards more stable ecosystems that are critical to climate stabilization at this point. Climate justice is a core component of land back. Some people have said we are not asking the land to be given back to us, but the land being given back to itself so that it can continue to provide natural law and order to our communities and the balance that we so desperately need in order to achieve climate justice. One of the most critical things that we need to do in order to um, mitigate the impacts of climate change is protect biodiversity on this planet. And where is 80% of the world's biodiversity? It's in existing Indigenous lands and territories, and particularly in territories where Indigenous people still maintain control and governance over their lands and territories. Not too far north of Grassy is Pamachawinake, the largest protected section of boreal forest in North America. For 7,000 years, the land has been stewarded by Anishinaabe protectors and has been beautifully preserved. It's the first UNESCO World Heritage Site in Canada selected for both its cultural and natural value. Here, at-risk species like woodland caribou and the Canadian warbler thrive alongside traditional culture in harmony. Climate justice is not just about stabilizing the greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere. It is about restoring our relationships with the land, 
It's about restoring our relationships with each other. It's about creating pathways to address the long history of harms caused by colonial systems. And it allows us to move towards something that has justice in the framework. Before Chrissy was born, Indigenous practices were outlawed in Canada. Until 1951, dances and other essential ceremonies were banned. Growing up, she felt the weight of this erasure. The way she puts it, people were afraid to revive their spirituality. But slowly, they're reclaiming it, starting with their relationship with the land. My grandson, you know, this year, um, he surprised me. He's seven. Mm-hmm. And um, he was watching the trees all, like, since the snow started melting. I caught up with Chrissy while she was in her office at the Grassy Narrows Youth Center. It was a little loud while we talked. You know the youths. And um, he kept saying, oh, I see, I see the buds now. <laughs> He's like, you know, that means the grass is going to be coming soon. I just, I was surprised, like, how aware he was, you know, just to keep an eye on, you know, something so simple. I think I was, like, two weeks ago, like, the leaves were flipped over. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's like, look, Kukum, he's like, the the trees want water. He says, it's going to rain, you know, like, so he's, like, starting to, you know, see that connection and, you know, like, and he has that respect, you know, even if he picks up a rock, you know, he'll come ask for tobacco and he, he'll like, if he wants to take that rock, he'll offer, you know, tobacco for that rock. Today, Chrissy practices traditional medicine. She's raising her family to embrace their indigeneity, to live with the land, not in opposition to it. She's also a Sundance chief for Grassy Narrows. The Sundance is a sacred ceremony of renewal and cleansing for the community, for the earth, and for the family still healing from generations of colonial trauma. For me to find my healing, I had to look back. I had to um, forgive my parents and forgive my grandparents. And I said it was just like scratching through this nasty surface, you know, when I broke through that that nasty part, there was something so beautiful. You know, the beauty is where we came from and the history of our people, you know, before uh, before mercury poisoning, before residential schools, you know, there was something really beautiful, you know, and that was that connection to the land and the water and and most of all, love, like the love that our people had, you know, for everything and everyone. So when the mercury came, that just stripped, you know, all that away from people that were trying to provide for their families. And it ended up creating, you know, social issues. I think it like almost made us disconnected from the water and the land. Um and then so with the poisoning, you know, it uh we're just recently finding out, you know, what the effects of mercury is. Mm-hmm. There's this like uh, 
I feel like we were just robbed, you know, of a, of a way of life, robbed of our own health and robbed of everything. For people who want to change their relationship with their environment, reclaim their relationship with the land, what advice would you give them about fostering that reconnection? Go home. <laughs> yeah, go home. Sit on your land, you know, and and just really, really feel the life that it has to give us, you know, and... And to live it, mm-hmm. like to truly live it, you know, um, to, to find out the history, you know, people always say, don't look back, but sometimes you do have to look back to understand. In a world that has displaced, restrained, and devastated them, where home can be a place of both harm and healing, going home is a deeply complicated project for so many Indigenous people. There's a lot of work to do and a lot of hope. Ariel sees a bright horizon ahead. I just think that it's such an incredible time to be Indigenous. There's been a renaissance of indigeneity that we are seeing unfold within the environmental movement and within the climate justice movement that forces us to really reevaluate how we are talking about environmentalism and climate justice. We're the ones that are pushing the envelope and we're using a rights-based framework that is upheld off of our intergenerational knowledge and our capacities to live in symbiotic relationships with the natural world that have led to the development of so many incredible governance systems, economic system, education systems, health systems that have allowed our communities to be who they are since time immemorial. What? do you like feel when you walk up to the water like grateful yeah like grateful I feel love I feel I don't know I can't explain it it's like respect yeah Today, Chrissy can look at this water gently lapping the shoreline and feel love. But that isn't how she always felt about it. So at 11 years old, um, I tried to unalive myself. And I have to share that part because it was like, I guess just a... Like, you know, to let people know that how hard, you know, life can be um, as an Indigenous person, you know, in a small community. While she was recovering, Chrissy's dad gave her a choice. Go home to Grassy or go live with her aunt in Winnipeg for a little while. And I chose to go to Winnipeg because I didn't want to be here anymore. And... um, 
us, that would have been like, you know, the best choice I ever made in my life. Being at 11 years old, you know. It was the summer of 1990. On the other side of the country, members of the Mohawk Nation were standing up to the development of a golf course on their ancestral burial grounds, a pivotal moment remembered as the Oka crisis. And uh, there was uh, protests and rallies going on across Canada, like in support of our Mohawk brothers and sisters. At one of these rallies, Chrissy absorbed drum songs and watched pipe ceremonies for the first time. And a warrior in attendance took notice of this wide-eyed girl, soaking it all up. And I remember, um, you know, this, this warrior teaching me a song. And I used to, like, I, I'll just add, you know, that I um, actually made that song into a lullaby for my kids. <laughs> and, uh, but I remember, um, you know... Him telling me, you know, take my hand. He led Chrissy on stage, and they started to sing. Louder and louder and louder. So it goes, um... There's words that go to the song, so like the words change over time. But I remember at the time the words were like, John Cretchen is not our leader. And then repeating again, John Cretchen is not our leader. Our true leaders are our children. I just remember like that rush, like I felt like I just went and kicked this door open, you know, and there's like this big light, you know, and I wanted to keep feeling like that. The long return toward love, love for Grassy, her ancestry, herself, began on that stage. Who um, do you understand yourself to be today? Today, I am carried by the stars. That's my Anishinaabe name. Uh, and today, I'm a mother, a grandmother, a wife, I'm a strong indigenous Anishinaabekwe, and I'm the land, the water, yep. Land Back calls on each of us to recognize ourselves as a fluid part of a larger whole, to dissolve into land and lake and dirt, like all these trees brushing against the shoreline, reaching down into perpetual reflection 
and skyward until the horizon claims us. Part of, not apart from. It calls on us, too, to be brave in our imagination of the future, to be expansive in our reckoning with legal pluralism, to recognize that land back is not land lost, but possibility gained. Yeah, so if people want to learn more about Grassy um, and the actions that we do or, you know, the announcements that come out about our community, then you can go to freegrassy.net. Miigwech. <laughs> Into the Mix is a Ben & Jerry's podcast produced by Vox Creative. This episode was written by Martha D. Sally. The Vox Creative team includes lead producer Bethany Denton, production manager Taylor Henry, and production coordinator Jessica Bay. Martha D. Sally is our supervising producer. Anu Subramanian is our executive producer. The team also includes Ariana Jiffo, senior manager of creative services, design director Brittany Fallacy, and post-production stars Greg Russ and Andrew Hammond. Kyle Neal engineered this episode. Original music by Israel Tutson. A special thank you to Suzanne Methot for her expertise and to Ariane Young for her support. The Ben & Jerry's team includes Jay Tandon, Jay Curley, Sunjana Mahesh, Chris Miller, Palika Makam, and Mariam Adrengi. Next month, we're introducing you to a tenacious medical student as she navigates the uncertain future of reproductive justice. I'm Ashley C. Ford. Thank you for listening. Fox Creative.